right. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. I was going to say, all right, friends, welcome to the show. But I say that every time, so I thought I'd just do something differently this time. But welcome to the show. And I am Greg Kokel. <laughs> so there you have it. I was asked a question not too long ago uh, about uh, about the nature of the soul and the body. And uh, I actually chatted with my team about this a little bit during our staff meeting because it's such an important issue. And uh, and I think that Christians characteristically are not uh, well-equipped to respond. Um, they know that humans having a soul is pretty essential to Christianity, because if you're just your physical body, and that's what physicalists believe, even so-called Christian physicalists—I say so-called because I have a hard time being confident that a person who is a physicalist, that all they believe that all that exists for a human is your physical body, and that there is no interior self that survives the death of your body. I have a hard time being uh, confident in my own mind that they're actually Christian. Um, now, I'm not going to say, you're not really a Christian, and I'm not going to berate them or whatever for that, but I, I do take strong exception with this view. Because then, what, what? I mean, there's not only biblical evidence that makes it clear that even though human beings are unified selves, they still have a material part, if you will, and an immaterial part. I mean, God doesn't have parts either, but He's still three persons. He's not made up of parts. He's not divisible. But there, are dis- He's one God with three persons. If we are comfortable with saying that kind of thing. <clears throat> As Christians regarding God, why can't we be comfortable to say that there is a unified human being that is both physical and non-physical, body and soul? And that seems to be the plain, straightforward language of Scripture. Paul says, you know, I was once kind of taken up to the second heaven or whatever, whether in the spirit or in the body, I don't know. Well, there can't be a distinction between the two if there isn't a distinction between the two, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. <clears throat> I, I, this is one of those things where I think, why, why complicate things? This is pretty straightforward. This is pretty simple. This is pretty clear. Why is this? Why are you denying what it seems to be obviously saying? Now, people can kind of give interpretations of those passages that end up supporting their view, but they strike me as not even being marginally plausible. Why don't you just hold the view that seems to be the most plausible, given the plain sense of the Scriptures that speak to these things? Of course, there are a lot of things like that, and I scratch my head because I don't understand how people get off on some strange tangents. And uh, if you are a teacher of Scripture, just teach the obvious stuff. Don't get creative. Don't speculate try to come up with something new, an inside look, a hidden knowledge, or whatever. This is just going to get you in trouble. Um, I just think it's obvious that Scripture teaches that there is a body and a soul. And it's not only obvious in Scripture, it is obvious in human life. Well, you can't see the soul. So what? There was an issue that was brought up once like that, during a Q&A uh, at a university in Georgia somewhere, I think. 
And after I spoke, there was Q&A, the question came up, and I asked the questioner, do you know what you're thinking right now? Yes. What of your, which of your five senses is communicating to you the knowledge of what you're thinking? Are you seeing it? Are you smelling it? Are you tasting it? Are you touching it? Are you hearing it? No, 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 no. In other words, you know something, and probably you know it incorrigibly. That is, you you know it without being mistaken. <laughs> you can't think you're thinking about a hot dog and not be thinking about it. Okay? You know it incorrigibly, even though you're not knowing it by your five senses. That's because there are different faculties we have for knowing, and one of them is direct perception. We are directly connected to our own conscious states. And uh, that's just one, I want to say evidence, but I, 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 I have a hard time with that, only because it's, let me give you an evidence that you are conscious right now, and the consciousness that you are experiencing is not the same as your physical body. Because it's obvious to everybody. When people say, look at I'm a woman in a man's body, or a man in a woman's body, do you see the distinction that they're understanding that's implicit, that their womanhood or manhood is distinct from their physical body? Now, I'm not even sure if that assessment or their characterization of their self-identity makes much sense, but notice that what's entailed in that statement is the requirement that they are not their bodies, that they can be a different gender from the sex of their body. Or someone says, it's my body, I can do what I want with my body. Notice that the I is not the same as the body. The body is the possession of the I. They must be of the self. They must be distinct things. When we go to sleep at night, we have dreams. Now, we, we, I, I guarantee you, in most cases, we are not in the slightest bit tempted to think that the things that we see in our dreams or experience in our dreams are things that really happened, <laughs> that had any physical manifestation of any kind when, for the entire time, we were dreaming them. Because they're not physical. They don't show up anywhere in the physical world. Now, there may be things going on in my brain while in my mind the dream was happening. No one that I know of disputes that. Of course there's an interaction. I am making my lips move right now and making sounds with my voice that correspond to tokens that that are part of a language in order to communicate information which itself is not physical. Okay, so my body's involved with my mind. So what? That doesn't mean my body is my mind. My mind is causing things to happen in my body. My body can cause things to happen in my mind. I can take drugs and hallucinate. All right? So there's an interaction back and forth, but doesn't mean they're the same thing. And they're obviously not the same thing. Now, biblically, it seems—now, there's a little difference of opinion here, but uh, it, it seems that the Bible gives a characterization— of a two of humans as a um, a two part thing, 
absent any more sophisticated language here. We are physical and we are non-physical. We are mental and we are uh, we are we are uh, we have bodies and we have souls or minds or spirits. And here, uh, though the scripture defines two different types of substances, a material one and an immaterial one, the immaterial substance is variously called spirit or soul or mind. It isn't like we have a soul and we have a spirit. It's that the soul or immaterial self that we have has different capacities. It has mental capacities and it has spiritual capacities. Which capacities are dead until there's a rebirth? Now, there are some people who believe that we are three uh, tripart, three parts, body, soul, spirit. I, that's not my view. It's not the standard view in Christianity. Even though once in a while you see the spirit and soul distinguished in language of the New Testament, even so, it's identifying distinct capacities. It seems to be not separate substances, separate things, like your body's a thing and your soul is a thing. Your body's a material thing, your soul is an immaterial thing, but they are separate stuff. And we don't have a separate stuff that's a spirit. We have a soul that has spiritual capacities, capacities to know God and to function in a spiritual way and to be sanctified. Um, so anyway, that's the way I would cash out the distinctions. And, uh, and, and much more could be said about this. Uh, the most fascinating part of my master's, I think, now I'm reflecting for a moment, the most fascinating part of my master's degree education under J.P. Moreland and at all, I should say at all, not and at all, is was the study I did with on the mind-body problem. And uh, that was really interesting. And not only was it interesting, is it, it massively expanded my capabilities to think carefully as a thoughtful Christian. Um, philosophy was a great help there. The mind-body problem, okay? So uh, part of the things, part of what I learned there helped me to navigate in this whole issue where people are denying the existence of the soul. And one of the things that became obvious to me is that souls are obvious. And there's a very simple uh, kind of illustration or exercise that I actually have, have audiences participate in. It just takes a few moments, actually. I have them close their eyes and imagine their mom doing some task and then ask them what color is the shirt or blouse that their mother is wearing. Then I have them open their eyes and then they tell me. And uh, then I ask this question, where, where was that thing that you just saw? You saw something that was so vivid you could give me all the details of it, even the color of the blouse or shirt she was wearing. Where was that? It was real. You saw it. Now, I have to put scare quotes around saw because we're using the words, the sense of seeing here in a different sense than seeing with the eyes. But of course, we use this all the time when we, when, when we make reference to our mental perceptions. We use the sight language. And in this case, we saw an image in our minds, okay? And not only can we see things, but we could hear things in our mind. You could hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, or at least a portion of it. Did you just hear it? I did. Dun-dun-dun-dun. 
but there was no music playing. It was just going in my head, as it were, in my head. But we don't mean in my head like my physical skull. We just are referring to our selves that feels like is located in our head, but isn't, because our immaterial selves have no physical location. Because immaterial things aren't located anywhere. They're real. They're ill-local in terms of their presence. Their presence can be manifest, just like God can do things in our lives and make things happen and answer prayers and do things and make thunder crash if he wanted to and make the Red Sea part if he wanted to, etc. But that doesn't mean that he is physically in the earth because he can't be since he's not physical. So we are we are we are present to make things happen in this space, though our it's an ill local presence, it's not a physical presence. So people talk about demons you know, almost like if they're sitting on your shoulder or something. They don't sit on anything, nor do angels, because they don't have any physical location. They can manifest themselves in physical ways, but they have no personal physical location. So these are just some thoughts that I have that are basic things, and most of what I'm reflecting on doesn't require a degree in philosophy. Most of these things are like common sense if you haven't been talked out of it because you went to grad school. If you go to grad school, they're going to tell you to deny the obvious, and that happens in a lot of areas, not just in the mind-body problem, not the issue of consciousness. <clears throat> By the way, that's what we're talking about, the nature of consciousness. And, uh, of course, uh, Daniel Dennett is famous for saying, Daniel Dennett, one of the so-called new atheists who aren't new anymore, and um, he's famous for, in assessing the nature of consciousness— because it's not possible to reduce consciousness to something physical, him, he, being a physicalist, must therefore deny its existence. <laughs> Pardon me for chuckling, but some of these things are silly. I'm not being derisive, I'm just saying, that's crazy. No, he says that consciousness is an illusion. It's not really there. We're just we're deluded in thinking. Wait, wait. We are deluded in thinking because there's an illusion. So here's my question. What is an illusion? Now, he's saying that consciousness is an example of an illusion. What is an illusion? An illusion, one might say, is when your consciousness is being appeared to in a false way. That's the way J.P. Moreland would probably put it. I like that. When your consciousness is being appeared to in a false way, or that you're seeing something that's not there. But who's seeing it? It's your conscious self that's seeing it. In other words, um, purely physical objects don't have illusions, are not betrayed by illusions, subject to illusions, because there's no consciousness there. You have to be conscious to have an illusion. But if consciousness is the illusion, what is having the illusion of consciousness? Is the illusion having an illusion? Obviously, this makes no sense. This is incoherent. It's contradictory. It cannot be the case that consciousness is an illusion. But it just shows the extent to, that some will go to deny what's obvious. 
that consciousness is real. It's a real feature of the world, and it's not physical. It's a real non-physical thing. It's ourselves. We are not physical. I think I recall J.P. Moreland saying that when his daughters were young, they were, I think, raising the issue of the existence of God because they can't see God. And he told his daughters, he said, honey, honeys, you can't even see your mother, which is true. They could see her physical body, but not her invisible self. We are invisible, and we possess a body, much like, you know, you put your hand in a glove. This is just an illustration. It's not proof of my point, but just to help you to see how it works. You put your hand in the glove. When you put your hand in the glove, the hand moves around. It does things. It does what you want it to do because your hand is, in a certain sense, animating the glove. You take your hand out of the glove, and the glove just lays there. That's what happens when you take the soul out of the body. The soul animates the body. You take the soul out, and the body just lays there. It's called dead. Now, the problem is that if somebody had gloves that no, this isn't a real circumstance. I was using this illustration for a five-year-old trying to explain to him what a soul was, an invisible self, and it was kind of like a hand in a glove. And the body was the glove, and the hand was the soul animating the glove. But what I said to him is, you know, if you if you had your gloves on all the time and no one ever saw your hands, it might occur to somebody, especially if they were younger, that maybe you didn't have any hands at all and maybe you were just all glove. But of course, the glove can't do what hands enable the glove to do. There must be hands. But this is a mistake people say that make when they see human beings, the bodies, the glove, and they don't see the soul that animates the body. They conclude that there must not be a soul at all. And that's a mistake. Why? Because we know better. We are more in touch with our souls than anything else in existence. Everything that we know and experience and believe is a function of our soul, and all the knowledge we gain about the physical world is mediated through our souls. That's how it comes to us, so to speak. So if we if we have no souls, there's nothing for us to be aware of, and there's nothing to for, about us to be deluded by an illusion. <laughs> Pretty common sense stuff. All right, let's take a break, and we got calls coming up on Stand to Reason. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Have you seen our brand new website? 
Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Time for calls, and I have someone here who's been very, very patient in Ohio, Maya. And Maya, thank you for your patience waiting over the break, into the second segment. Nice to talk with you. Hi, Greg. Thanks for picking up. Sure. What's up? Um, so um, I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and I mm-hmm. just want to say thank you for um, growing my faith. Um, and I've learned a lot through your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty new in the Lord, so I had kind of a simple question mm-hmm. that I'm sure can be easily answered. Um, but online I saw someone post about something that said, um, well, if God made us as humans, you know, then why did he, in quotations, program or make it so hard for us to believe that he exists? And wouldn't he understand how our brains would interpret evidence, um, I guess, as plausible in our view? And if it's on the topic of free will, and I'm currently reading a book on existentialism, um, just because I'd really like to hear what, you know, whether someone's an atheist or not, what their views are um, and what they believe in and what their questions are. Sure. Something that was brought up in the book was, um, if I am in Christ, how do I trust my instinct, instincts being God or the devil or something else? What was that last one? If I am what? In Christ? So if I'm in Christ or if I'm a believer, how do I trust that my instincts are God or the devil or just something else? Well, um, there's a lot here, okay? Really great questions. Glad to chat with you about this. But let me just go to the very first one, okay? Because this is a common concern that is raised by people, especially by atheists. If, if, God, um, uh, if God actually exists, then why isn't there more evidence that he exists, all right? And in uh, and, and their mind— and this is like Bertrand Russell, who was a, a philosopher of the 20th century, a British philosopher. He said, he was an atheist, and he said, why doesn't he believe in God? Not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Now, this is a striking statement to me, because the evidence for God, it's, it seems to me, is very powerful. But before I get into the details there, um, and, and quite compelling. I just want to make an observation, but let me make the point by asking you a question. Um, given the population of the world, <laughs> make an educated guess here. What do you think the percentage of the world is that does not believe in God? I would say... I'm not sure. It's pretty pessimistic, so probably like 
that does not believe in God. That's actually probably rather high. The number of atheists in this country is between 2 and 4%. Let's just take America, for example. Okay. That's really small. Now, in Europe, because you have the influence of the, uh, you know, <clears throat> that particular culture um, and existentialists and stuff like that, because a lot of the existential philosophers that you'll read came from Europe, the continent, you're going to have a higher degree number of people, much higher number of people who don't believe in God. Uh, when you have communist countries like Russia or China, you have a dogma that's taught there is no God, okay? So you have it kind of pounded into them. However, when people are left to themselves, their natural response is to believe in God. In fact, there's an interesting study, and I don't have the footnote for you right now, the bib source. <clears throat> but it's, it's fairly well known in where, where this kind of thing is discussed. And that is that um, children of atheists have to be constantly reminded that God doesn't exist because their natural inclination, when they look at the way the world is structured, is to believe that some mind is behind the structure. Now, what this is meant to speak to is this challenge, if there really is a God, and God made humans, why did he make it so hard for them to know he exists? Apparently, it's not hard at all. Because massive portions of the population, when you've got seven or eight billion people on the planet, at least half of them believe in God. Now, the atheists would say, well, they're mistaken, there is no God. Well, that's not the discussion. The question is, if he made it, if he does exist, why did he make it so hard? Well, half the population, and probably a lot more, of the planet didn't think that he's made it that hard. And it strikes me pretty obvious that he does because of the nature of the world that we're in, which is exactly what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1. Mm -hmm. So, and you're familiar maybe with that verse, verse 18 and following, okay? The, the truth of God is evident in what he has made, his eternal power and his divine nature. All you have to do is look around, okay? This is really obvious. Um, so I, do, I, 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 I don't... Um, uh, cotton to the idea that God has made it so hard for us to believe in Him. Um, and I'll give you one example. Okay, this is a classic argument for the existence of God um, that I'm going to offer you, but I like it more than any other argument that I think the other ones, the other evidences are really powerful. Let me introduce it with a question. If you, re if you think about it for a moment— uh, Maya, what do you think is the most, has historically, in a sense, been the most common objection to the existence of God? Um, suffering. Suffering and evil. Mm -hmm. It's not just suffering, because suffering, the, the point is that the suffering is a bad thing. It's not just that they're suffering, but suffering shouldn't happen. That's an evil. Right. So we're just going to call it the problem of evil. But notice that in order to make that objection, the idea of what is good and evil has to be outside of us. We perceive that certain things are wrong. It's not just a matter of things we don't like, but things are actually wrong. Some rule has been broken when people do evil things. 
Now, that, I mean, the whole world knows this. doesn't matter where you live or when you lived. Everybody knows something's wrong with the world. Okay, great. I got it. But that means that morality is objective in some sense. It's not just to make me up. If there's real morality in the world, which is testified to by the common uh, concern about the problem of evil, then there must be some kind of ground or source for morality. It's like we have stop signs or speed limits. That's better. We have speed limits. There's the sign. That's how we know there's a speed limit. But that's not what set the speed limit. What set the speed limit? The government set the speed limit. So we can see speeders breaking the limit. Oh, there he just went by. He wasn't going 35. He was going 50 at least. He broke the law. So we can know they broke the law. But then we have to ask, that's the problem of evil, by parallel. But then we have to ask the question, where did the law come from that we are obliged to keep, but don't when we do evil in the world? There's got to be a lawmaker. And that's the moral argument for God. So what I'm offering you is an argument for God's existence. And by the way, that's one of the most airtight. The problem of evil makes it clear that there's evil in the world. Mm -hmm. People know that. And that's because moral, objective moral obligations have been violated to create the evil. But where do those obligations come from? Where do those rules come from? Okay, that's God. There's not any other source. It's not going to come from evolution. That gives you relativism, not objective morality. So that's the answer. There's got to be a God. Now, why is that hard to figure out? We all know there's a problem of evil. That's because things ain't right. It ain't the way it's supposed to be. Well, you can't have a way it is supposed to be unless there's a sposer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? Okay, why is that so hard? Oh, God made it so hard for us to know he exists. Look at every time you complain about the problem of evil, you are implicitly acknowledging the existence of a divine lawmaker mm. who gets disobeyed when there's evil. Well, I, I, I'm not. I don't know what um, the 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 British Bertrand Russell philosopher thought about that. I know what other atheistic philosophers thought. Evil is just an illusion. Really. Yeah, when we say something's bad, we're just kind of emoting. It's called emotivism. Yeah, we're going, oh, I don't like that. Rape, oh. No, I think rape is wrong. Even if even if people like rape, like the rapist, doesn't make it right. So how how is it that these guys, you know, can look at the evil in the world and complain about the evil in the world and say there is no God because there's evil in the world, and then then they're not, they don't try and make any attempt to make sense out of the evil of the world as an atheist, which they can't do, in my view. So I guess I'm I'm just blathering on here a little bit by uh, kind of making the point that there are lots of good reasons to actually believe that God exists. And it strikes me that the odds on favorite is God. And there's a number of different lines of thinking that leads me to that conclusion. And it's not that hard. That's why the vast majority of people in the world believe in God, because in their minds, it's pretty obvious. Now, it doesn't mean that the vast majority are right. Somebody say, oh, that's argumentum ad populum. You're just appealing to the masses. 
I'm not just appealing to the opinions of the masses. Remember, the objection is, why did God make it so hard for people to know he exists? And all I'm saying is, it looks like there's a whole lot of people that don't think it's hard at all that the existence of God is obvious. You don't have to go looking for him, you know, and really, when, in strange places. When, when I, let's see, how old was I? I was 22 years old. I left Michigan, drove to the West Coast. I first lived in Berkeley. And I was thinking about the issue of God. And I said, well, if there is God and there is a true religion, the secret of it must be in some old musty book that somebody never reads. It must be in some kind of strange place, and I've got to go to an ashram and get the real truth about religion. Why would I think that? That would be God hiding. But on the Christian view, God's not hiding at all. He's right out in the open. That's why we can give so many reasons why we think that God is the best explanation for the way things are. He's not hiding. Right. Make sense? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Now, did you have another nuance there about something about free will or uh, Um, existentialism? I think you you answered it. Um, It was more about, like, our instincts. Um, If we know what our instincts are telling us, if that's just human error or if that's God or if it's, you know, the devil, I think... um, that's something that's also a little confusing. That um, okay. So I think when you a philosopher brought up. got it. Okay. So when good. I'm glad you brought that up again because I wanted to offer some th- thinking on that. When you say instincts, you mean what? I guess you know when you. I, I'm like new in the faith, so I'm not really sure. I guess saying the word right is even correct. Um, but when you know when you pray to God about something, and you pray to, you know, you don't really physically hear his voice. I know that's not how it works, Um, but you can hear, you can, it's kind of hard to explain, where you don't know if the instincts that were given to you, if you prayed to God, were from God, or if it's the devil. Okay, I got you. I, that, you know, I actually understand you much more than you think yeah, I do, sorry. and there's that, no I mean. worries, no worries here. Um, but there is a whole bunch of people listening here that are kind of chuckling because they know what I'm about to say, mm-hmm. that um, I do not think biblically, and I'm being very mm-hmm. careful how I'm using my words, that the Bible gives us any reason to expect we are going to get private messages from God. Although, that's the way almost all evangelical Christians talk. Hmm. I think that's a huge mistake. I've written quite a few things about it, and I I am going uh, to—probably—I haven't said this publicly, but I've been thinking, just between you and me, of this being my next book. All right? Just finished one. Just came out in September, Street Smarts. And right after you're done with the book, you think, I'm never going to do that again. But I am thinking about it. And, uh, and, and, I, I, and the, que- the working title is, Does God Whisper? Because that's the question. Is it God nudge, nudge, hint, hint me right here? Or is that just me? Or is that the, is that the devil? Or whatever. And, and my understanding of the Bible is that that's not a question that needs to be asked. Because if God is going to say something to you, he's going to speak clearly. And this is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. Every single time that God spoke, so to speak, it only happened 14 times in the book of Acts in 30 years that we have a record of. And every single time 
that we see that where we're given the now I'm going to use a fancy philosophical word here, okay, that I paid a lot of money to be able to say. But when we see that the phenomenology, the phenomenology, that is the way it appears to the person who is receiving that revelation, is always supernatural. When we know the phenomenology, it's supernatural. There are no nudge, nudge, hint, hint, whisper, whisper in the book of Acts. Angels show up. Jesus shows up. There's a vision. There's a dream. Somebody's being physically transported by the Holy Spirit. A prophet is speaking. You know, these are the ways that God is speaking in the book of Acts. He speaks clearly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do the hint, hint, nudge, nudge. But I'm just saying, so, I'm glad I got you early. <laughs> Young Christian, I'm going to save you from a lot of headache. Right. This, this is the way Christians talk. And they are very committed to this view that God gives all these little messages to every Christian. The Bible does not teach that. And I know every verse virtually in the entire Bible that people have used to verify this in all of the verses that they are using, they are taking out of context. It is not what the writer had in mind when he originally wrote it. Whether it's being led by the Spirit in Romans 8 or Galatians 5, whether it's having a peace about it in Colossians 3, whether it's open doors and closed doors at the end of 1 Corinthians, the beginning of 2 Corinthians, all these different things are not understood by the writers to be hints by God who's trying to nudge, nudge, hint, hint his decision for you about what he wants you to do. He has given us the Bible and other Christian brothers and sisters to help us make wise decisions and to know right from wrong. And so we don't have to divine or discern whether this thought that came into our head, is that God or is that me or is that the devil? If it's wrong, don't do it. If it's stupid, don't do it. <laughs> if it's smart and wise and good, then go ahead. You got. You don't need God's permission. People say, if you feel led, you can sign up to help with the uh, with the hunger stuff that we're doing in the local community. Well, wait a minute. Can I sign up even if I don't feel led by the Spirit? Do I have to have permission from God to do something good? No, you don't need permission from God. This is a whole. Right. There's a lot I could say about this, but I'm just giving you a little bit. And uh, at Standard Reason, we have some training and teaching on decision-making and the will of God. You can find it on our website. Uh, There's also a a series of articles I wrote on our website titled, uh, Does God Whisper? And my my answer is no. (laughs) He doesn't whisper. If he wants to tell you something, he's not going to give you jumbled language. He's going to tell you straightforward. That's the testimony of Scripture. But that will give you more substance if you want a little more detail. There's also a booklet that we have called The Ambassador's Guide to the Voice of God. Is that right, Amy? Yeah, that's it. And so, uh, which really is those articles on God, Does God Whisper that's been put into book form, a book booklet form. So you can get it either way. If you get it in the articles, it's free. <laughs> You can get the booklet if you want to, because it's all together there. But that'll give you a little bit more understanding. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about the God talking. Learn to make good decisions from Scripture and based on the advice of more mature believers. 
Okay, sounds good. I just I just wanted to clear that up after reading it in a book, and I knew it sounded kind of weird, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Maya. And it, I think biblically it is unusual, but most Christians do not think it's weird. And if you tell your Christian friends what I just told you, they're going to say he's wrong. But if you go back to the text, and that's what I do in all the writings, let's look at each individual verse. You're going to see that it doesn't teach what people say, think it teaches. Being led by the Spirit is not getting a nudge-nudge. That's not what Paul means by the phrase, and he's the only one who uses it, and he uses it in two places, Romans 8 and Galatians 5. What he means is overcoming the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, doing good things, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, that kind of thing. Well, there you go. you got a lot to think about, Maya. Thank you for calling, and I hope to chat with you again, okay? Thank you so much. Have a great night. All right. Bye-bye now. All right. Let's uh, take a break, and then we'll get on with our final call with Ryan in Morgan Hill, California. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Uh, Just a reminder here that we have... This year, starting uh, January here, we have two new SDR University courses available. And Tim Barnett, a.k.a. Mr. B, is teaching on reaching the next generation, really critical issue. A lot of youth pastors should watch this and hear what Tim has to say. He's got great understanding. He is the co-author with Elisa Childers of The Deconstruction of Christianity, being released January 30th this month. We got to have Tim on. We got to schedule him soon after release, Amos, and uh, we'll talk about his book. Uh, or Tim and Elisa, I don't know. Probably Tim's easier because Elisa's pretty busy. Uh, she just put out, I think she just put out an album. Yeah. So, wow. She's an incredible YouTuber, but she was also formerly a member of the group uh, Zoe Girls, and now she's still got her wonderful gift that she's using, recording. Um, Her father, Chuck Gerard, of the groundbreaking Christian group, way back in the Jesus movement, when I first became a believer, Love Song, 
So she's got it in her genes or she's got it in her soul, however that works, but she's got it. So we'll probably just have Tim on. But uh, the other course, Reaching the Next Generation, Tim Barnett, the other one is titled Transgenderism, Truth and Compassion. Uh, this is a theme with Alan Schliemann, who is the teacher of this course. He specializes in these areas that in any of these sexual issues that get addressed, there's always needs to be truth and compassion. Uh, Jesus came, John says in John chapter 1, full of grace and truth. It wasn't just grace. It wasn't just truth. It was grace and truth. And this is the idea of truth and compassion, that we can go and address these issues. And Alan brings his expertise to bring tremendous amount of uh, insight and understanding to the issue. Training.str.org is the place to go to for those classes. All right, let's go to Ryan. And Ryan, Morgan Hill, California. Where is Morgan Hill, Ryan? Hey, Greg. Yeah, it's actually just a little bit. It's the, basically the next city north of Gilroy, which you go oh. down to pretty much, uh, yeah, for a while now, yeah. last two years. I unfortunately missed you the last time you came up. But I really want to go if, uh, if you do come up again this year. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's only about 15-minute drive away. So, okay, yeah, I think that I, I blogged 26 summers with them or events with them. Wow. It's wow, amazing. Yeah. I, I got a plaque after 20, 20 years, or maybe it was 25. They gave me a plaque, and they keep inviting me back. So uh, I did miss one <laughs> year, or maybe two because of scheduling. But, yeah, that's been a great relationship there. And that's where that other famous city is. Where's that other famous city? It's on everybody's T-shirt. What is that? Oh. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's on the T-shirts. Yeah. It's actually a brand uh, that has the same name as the city. I'm drawing a blank Amy, right now. <laughs> all right, Amy will probably think of it. What is that city around Gilroy that's actually a brand of a clothing? Oh, I think, okay. Hollister, not... Hollister, there it is. Oh, Hollister. Oh, yeah, because I taught at Hollister once. Yeah, and I said, you guys are famous. Man, I was in Europe, and I saw your T-shirts, man. Your, your city's famous. <laughs> anyway, Hollister. All right, so from the right. ridiculous to the more sublime, hopefully. <laughs> What's on your mind? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, man, I, I can't believe I didn't, <laughs> didn't think of Hollister. Yeah, I know. It's but, one um, of those crazy things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had, well, we probably only have time for one question, but I, um, the first question I had was kind of a philosophical um, issue that sometimes I'll see it online when um, when people make arguments for, Christians uh, make arguments for God's existence. I know a lot of skeptics and atheists will mm-hmm. kind of level a informal fallacy against um, people making arguments called uh, special pleading. And I don't really know a lot about special pleading. I think I looked it up once on like Wikipedia. Yeah, and I, I've actually looked. Sense. I, I've actually looked it up a couple of times because um, I had a one understanding about it, and then I think maybe the definitions gave me another understanding. At first I thought, and maybe there's an element here of that, is when you yeah. give all the evidence for one side of the view, but you don't give any evidence for the other side because you don't think it's relative, relevant, rather, okay? Mm-hmm. But I, I actually think, and I was just talking with Amy about it, too, I think special pleading is more when there seems to be a kind of rule governing something, maybe a rule of thinking or whatever, a line of thinking, and 
and the a person is advocating for a position contrary to this rule and is saying, well, that rule doesn't apply to me. That line of thinking or that object, that doesn't apply to me for some ad hoc reason. And when oh, you say okay. ad hoc, that means for this. And it sounds like you're when you're you're just making it up. You're, it's not you're making up an excuse to excuse the behavior or the line of thinking when, in fact, there is other information that would disqualify your view. But you're instead you're doing special pleading regarding your view. And I can't actually give oh. you an example of it right now, but if you mm -hmm. go to Google and just Google special pleading, you'll see some examples of it. And it may be that sometimes they'll give you religious examples, you know, Christians say this, but that's special pleading. Uh, by right. the way, yeah. I have uh, this is called an informal fallacy. Okay, an informal right. fallacy mm -hmm. is a fallacy that's not uh, tied to an errant form of the argument. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you can have deductive arguments that have to follow a certain form in order to be legitimate, or I should say valid type arguments. Yeah, the form is right. But these are problems that don't fall in the category of form. They're just mistaken. Uh, like yeah. when, you know, like a straw man, right? So if I said, um, uh, you know, oh, here's what people say. Why would God send me to hell just because I don't believe in him? Okay, that's right. a fallacy, yeah. you know, because mm -hmm. that isn't why God sends people to hell. But yeah. uh, they've misrepresented the Christian view. That's an informal fallacy. And so in the same way, this special pleading is another example of an informal fallacy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, and sometimes, you know, people are going to be accused of special pleading when, in fact, it's not a fallacy of special pleading. Um, so you just have to look at the details carefully to see if that's what's going on. I see. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking uh, another informal fallacy that's common uh, among, actually, atheists is the genetic fallacy. Yes. I see that a lot. Um, I remember watching a little bit of a debate that William Lee Craig had with someone. I mean, Craig just destroyed this guy, but he uh, <laughs> he just made all these genetic fallacy arguments. And yeah. like when they turned to Craig, Craig was just like, I can't believe how many genetic fallacies you just committed just said right. right there. Yeah. Right well, there. when somebody, an atheist yeah, said, like, you're a Christian because. Well, this is actually a good illustration because it makes another point. We can get to your California yeah. political change question in a moment. But um, oh, yeah, yeah. The, when people say um, uh, something like, uh, well, you're a Christian because you were born in America. If you were born right. in Saudi Arabia, you'd be a Muslim. So there. Well, that proves nothing. All that exactly. it, it might tell you something accurate about geography and anthropology and culture. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't tell you anything about whether Christianity— is true or false relative to Islam being true or false. They could both be false. One could be true and not the other. It's irrelevant what is the motivation, the cultural motivation for someone to believe. The truth of the proposition is irrelevant to that. That's why it's called a genetic fallacy, because right. it is faulting the view for its genesis, its origin. It comes from, mm -hmm. you're a man, so what do you have to say about abortion? 
genetic fallacy. Okay, now here, here's another example where I was accused of making a fallacy that wasn't a fallacy. <clears throat> um, and the fallacy of accusation was called, it's called tu coque. And tu coque simply means you too, you too. Okay, well, you lied. Well, you lie too. Well, I mean, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't rescue you from the charge against you when you say, you too. And so I was accused of doing the two coque fallacy when I said regarding this issue, um, you're a Christian because you were born in this country. If you were born in Saudi, you wouldn't be a, you wouldn't be a Christian. You'd be a Muslim. To which I respond, yeah. if you were born in Saudi, you wouldn't be an atheist. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. you too. No, that's not you too. I'm not just pointing the finger and say, you too. I'm saying, if your line of thinking works to um, subvert Christianity, it equally works to subvert atheism. But it doesn't work to subvert either of them, because in both cases, it's a genetic fallacy. So, but this guy thought yeah. he just—he was onto something, and he's a pretty bright guy too, as I recall. And he posted this thing and the two coque fallacy, and he's all over me on here. And he just didn't understand the point I was making. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I wasn't saying it's okay for me, but not for you, or vice versa. I'm just saying it. This is not. This is not a good argument. It's fallacious, and it's fallacious when I do it. And if it works, it works against you. But it doesn't work mm. against you because it doesn't work against me. What's sauce yeah. for the goose is sauce for the gander. Yeah, that should be called the schoolyard fallacy, just because like you too. Yeah, well, that's a good <laughs> one. Me. So there, take that. Yeah, exactly. And you're ugly, you know. Exactly. Okay, what's the second <laughs> yeah. issue? We we've got about four minutes to go here. What's this? Oh, or okay. Maybe three. Yeah, I'll um, yeah, I'll make it quick. So I mean, we're based. We're both native Californians. Um, and, you know, with this state, it, it feels like, I mean, we're, we're so far left here that it, I, I just feel like voting isn't really going to make a big difference, um, in terms of like affecting what I would think is positive change. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously a lot of people here would disagree with, they think a lot of positive things are happening here, but, um, but I don't. So I, I know, obviously, we can pray, pray for our leaders, and um, but what's um, what are some what are other things we can do to make you know just affect kind of positive change? Sure, it just seems like you know, like it seems like Scott, you know, Senator Scott Weiner's pushing bills every other week. Yeah, I know it's trying to to get it's crazy. It's crazy. Now, now you can't you can't put food in your trash can. Exactly. You can't put food waste yeah. in your trash can. It, I mean, like, are you kidding me? Okay, so I, quickly, um, yeah. Yeah. I think your point is a good one. The state of California is not likely to be changed by any human effort. For When right. those things are left to human effort, God leaves it to human effort to accomplish something else, there's some things that we just aren't going to be able to do. I mean, think right. of um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer against the Third Reich. Bonhoeffer and the Church were not able to change the Third Reich. That took a whole world war to rectify yeah. that problem, okay? It was not in their control, and many things are not in our control. We can pray, yeah. and we ought to pray, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that God is going to change things in, 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 as a consequence of our prayer. But if you want yeah. to make the biggest impact, the more local you get, 
the bigger the impact you're going to have because of the numbers. You can be one of 20 million, I don't know what the population of the state of California is, or you can be one of 20,000. Well, right. when you're one of 20 mm -hmm. or 5,000, depending, you know, yeah. in your community. The place to have the biggest impact is in local elections. I think everybody should vote across the board for everybody. Just do it. But it's going to have the biggest impact in local elections, and that's the, the area where more conservative people can get voted for and get office and have an impact where you live. I mean, it's the single right. most important thing. 30 seconds and we're done here. But that's yeah. one thing that's if you, if you focus on the local circumstances, because that's going to make the biggest difference. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. So, yeah, we're getting a new Chick-fil-A here in Morgan Hill. Uh hasn't been built yet, but one of our oh. uh, council members was uh wants it or he was upset because of Chick-fil-A, the history, and they always, you know, call like they were anti-LGBTQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well they've softened um, on that a little bit. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they don't like them. So, okay, well why should yeah. somebody not be allowed to apply their business? because that company doesn't agree with some people's politics. That, to me, right. is, a, is a, a specious concern. So anyway, um, there you go. That's my quick advice for uh, California. You're not going to change the state. You might change your community. Thanks for the call, Ryan. Appreciate that. Thanks to the rest of you, your time with me, listening, calling in, giving your two cents, as it were, allowing me to give you a piece of my mind in return. Greg Kokel here for Sander Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.